Thanks so much, Heather. All right, you guys can have a seat. Oh, and the kids can be dismissed as well. All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. Uh, so, as you know, the passage that we're going to be digging into today, it's, it's kind of been a long time coming, right? It's, it, we've, been, we've been trying to make our way there for, for kind of the last two to three weeks, and we're, we're going to finally be hearing about Jesus' words on the subject of divorce. Now, as I've been saying over the last several weeks, this, this, this is a difficult subject, right? This is, this is a hard subject, one that is, that is filled with, with a lot of heartache, with a lot of regret, with a lot of guilt, and a lot of shame. And while much of this morning will be me preaching on, on piercing truths that are hard to hear, for, for which I, I pray that you hear me with grace, this is also a subject that has great hope. On the horizon. And so as we go forward, if you're someone who has gone through the process of divorce, there's, there's one basic and simple thing that I want you to keep in the forefront of your mind as we work our way through this sermon. And that is that there is forgiveness for each and every sin which Christ purchased on the cross for you. There's no sin that you have ever done, including divorce, and everything tied to it that is left out of the forgiveness if you have repented and placed your faith in Him. That's, that's a promise that we have from the gospel. And so as you listen to the sermon, as you, as you hear these difficult truths that may apply to you, do not lose sight of the love and mercy of God in it all. Don't lose sight of that. Now, two weeks ago, we went over the importance of biblical covenants. And we spoke how God uses these agreements to bind himself to his people. And then we then took a look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, in which the Apostle Paul speaks of how marriage is not a simple contract between a man and a woman that, that just simply unites them for their own happiness. That's not the main purpose, but it's a covenant that is instituted by God for the higher purpose of being a living picture of Christ's love and fidelity to his own bride, to, to his church. And now that we have, we have laid that foundation, now, with, now that we, we somewhat understand so as much as the ability that we have to understand these wonderful truths, it is finally time to, to sink our teeth into to not one, but two passages this morning. And the first is Mark 10, uh, but we're only actually going to be there in verses 1 through 2. That's it. We're, we're going to be there really quickly. And we don't actually technically need to be in Mark 10, verses 1 through 2, but I feel like I have to do at least something in Mark 10 to say that I did Mark 10, all right? So... Just laying that out there. But then we're going to flip backwards several pages in our Bibles to Matthew 19. Now, I promise it's not because I'm trying to sneak out of this topic again. I, I promise that's not why. But Matthew 19 is one of the companion passages to Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, that gives us a few more details that's uh, not included in Mark's account of this event. That's why we're going uh, to be spending the majority of our time 
in Matthew 19. And so if you have your Bibles with you, let's first look at Mark 10, 1 through 2. And this is to, to really set the stage for what we're going to be talking about. It says, Jesus went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Remember, he has now set his face toward Jerusalem. He is beginning the final leg of his earthly ministry. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. In Matthew 19, it says he also healed them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to, to test him, to test Jesus, he asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, the Pharisees came up with this question specifically to trip Jesus up. But that kind of begs the question, why, why this question? It seems like a somewhat innocuous query to ask Jesus, when there seems like there's, there could be a million other questions that they could ask that would be even more difficult for Jesus to answer. So, so why this question? Why this one? Well, to understand that why, to, under, to understand why the Pharisees chose that question, it's, it's actually helpful to know a little bit of inside Pharisaical baseball, which I know sounds super exciting, so... Hang on to your seats, everybody. You see, within the group of the Pharisees, there were two positions that were taken on the topic of divorce based on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1, which says that a man is allowed to present a certificate of divorce if he found something indecent in his wife. But there was debate around the word indecent and its meaning. And the Pharisees fell into one of two camps. Those who followed the teaching of Rabbi Shammai and those who followed the teaching of Rabbi Hillel. Now Shammai taught that what Moses meant by indecent was sexual immorality, was, was adultery. So it was a very specific definition. It was, it was very narrow. And that, of course, was considered the, the conservative view of the time. Now, Rabbi Hillel taught that the term indecent can essentially be defined by the husband. So, so nearly anything the husband did not like about his wife, he could just say, well, that's, that thing is indecent. I, I personally find that indecent, and therefore I can, I can present my, my case to the, to the uh, religious court and get a divorce. And that, of course, was the more liberal view of divorce. Now, most of the Pharisees followed Hillel. To no big surprise, the more liberal view. And therefore, for many Jews of the day, uh, divorce looked a lot like modern no-fault divorce, where a husband could, could really cite any sort of reason for their desire to obtain a divorce, and they would most likely receive it as long as indecency was claimed. So one possible reason why the Pharisees decided to ask Jesus this particular question was to get him embroiled in this controversy where no matter what he answered, no matter, no matter which side he took, he would have some who would hate him for it and claim that his view was, was either against the cultural norm of the day or it was against Moses's and, and therefore God's intent for the word indecent. And so Jesus would be going against the law. Now, another possible reason they asked the question was because, if you remember, Jesus now entered into the area of Judea. And do you remember who is in power in Judea? Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And if you turn back a few pages 
to Mark chapter 6, and if you look at verses 17 through 29, you, you will remember that John the Baptist was jailed and eventually killed for calling out Herod for divorcing his wife so that he could marry his brother's wife. And so divorce was, was just a little bit of a touchy subject for Herod and his vengeful bride. And so the Pharisees may have been hoping that, that Jesus would actually take the more conservative position, which would stir up trouble for Jesus with Herod and earn him the same fate as John the Baptist. And so one, or quite possibly both of these reasons, were why the Pharisees chose this question to trap Jesus. They wanted to put Jesus literally between a rock and a hard place. Not literally, figuratively, between a rock and a hard place. I know Jared was going to call me out on that after the service, so figuratively. Now that we understand the motivations of the Pharisees, I want us to carefully and humbly walk through Jesus' response to this question. But first, let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for everyone who has gathered here this morning. There are so many things that, yeah, that they could be doing this morning in, in celebration of Father's Day or, or just a, another day off from work, Lord, but you, you drew them to this place. And God, I believe that you drew them here for a purpose, for a reason. You have a message that, that you want them to hear, and so I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit, God, speaks through me this morning, removes me out of the equation, and speaks through your word to their hearts. And so, Father, I pray that you give us all ears to hear what you have to teach us this morning. And Lord, grant us the humility to bend our knees to the authoritative word that you have set before us. Father, I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so now as we look to Jesus' response to the Pharisees, I actually want us to go to Matthew chapter 19. And as I said, in this chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we are given this same account with just a, a bit more detail. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to flip them open to Matthew 19. If you don't have Bibles, that's, that's totally fine. We, we have some up there if you would like to grab one, or we also have the uh, passage on the screen behind us, or behind me, not behind you guys. So as we'll see, Jesus did not really care too much about going against cultural theological trends, or he did not care so much about the egos of politicians, no matter how powerful they were. But as he begins to answer the Pharisees' question, he decides to start by reminding them of the first principles of marriage, the, the foundation, the, the fundamental truths that undergird the institution that is marriage. And so take a look at verses 4 through 6. Now, this might sound familiar from last week if you were here. But Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus does precisely what Paul did last week in Ephesians 5. He, he reminds the Pharisees of the divine origin and the holy purpose of marriage. Jesus takes them back to Genesis 2, to the, to the Garden of Eden, when God first instituted marriage between Adam and Eve. 
And if you remember from what was said last week, since, since God ordained the covenant of marriage, it is He alone who has the authority to define its terms. I'm not going to go into too much detail in regards to that since I preached on that in length last week. But, but in summary, marriage is defined by God as a covenant made between a man and a woman that is meant to reflect the binding love Christ has for His church and His church's submission to His loving headship and authority. That's marriage. That's the definition of marriage. This is, this is no man-made institution. The state is not authoritative over it. When Kayla and I were married, when we exchanged our vows and we entered into the covenant of marriage, we were presented with a certificate from the state that was meant to confirm our marriage, that was meant to, that was meant to seal our marriage and say that, that our, our union was valid. Now, that piece of paper, while, while it was nice with its flowing letters and, and nice you know, cardstock or whatever the fancy paper that they use, was, was wonderful and great, it essentially meant nothing to me. It meant nothing to me. Marriage is not ordained nor confirmed nor sealed by the state. It's not. The state doesn't hold the power nor the authority to do that. So therefore, they have no power to define marriage in any way that differs from the Word of God. It is God alone who has that authority, who has the authority to define marriage as He sees fit. As we see in verse 6, God's original intention for marriage was to be a permanent union. It says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, meaning, meaning the coming together in the spiritual union that is expressed physically in sexual relationship is a work done by God. And therefore, let not man separate. You see, Jesus knew that the Pharisees and the cultural majority had forgotten God's intent of marriage. Now, I may be reading some tone into this, but I imagine this is a lament coming from Jesus. It's a lament, a, a, a deep sorrow for the shipwreck that the sinful culture had made of marriage, a culture that is, that is mirrored by our own divorce-crazed culture. And so, brothers and sisters, when we, when we ponder marriage, when we sit and think about the, the symbolism of it and the, the purpose of it, we must follow the pointing of Jesus that leads us back to the starting point of marriage to the founding truths of it, to God's definition of it, to a covenant instituted by Him between a man and a woman that has perpetual, that has ongoing significance and therefore is meant to be a permanent union unto death. Now, not only do we nor the state not have the right to redefine marriage, but neither do we nor the state have the right to set the standards for breaking the marriage covenant. Just as only God can make the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, it is only God who can break that marriage covenant. Bible scholar Jay Adams says this. He says, if marriage were of human origin, then humans would have the right to set it aside. But since God instituted marriage, only He has the right to do so. 
Marriage as an institution is subject to the rules and regulations set down by God. Individuals may marry, be divorced, or be remarried only if, when, and how he says they may be without sinning. The state has been given the task of keeping orderly records of marriage, but it has no right or competence to determine the rules for marriage and divorce. That prerogative is God. Now, pay, pay close attention to that last line. I'm going to read it one more time. The state has been given the task of keeping orderly records of marriage, but it has no right or competence. I really like that part. It has no competence to determine the rules for marriage and divorce. That prerogative is God's. And this brings us back to the question posed by the Pharisees. In Mark's account, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew's account adds the detail, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And after Jesus points them to God's original intent of marriage be being a, a permanent union, the Pharisees, in Matthew 19, verse 4, brings up the passage in Deuteronomy 24, mentioned earlier. And they ask, well, well, if marriage is supposed to be this permanent thing, Jesus, if that's, if that's what God originally intended, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Why? Why, Jesus? Enlighten us. And Jesus' answer to that, in short, is because of the sinfulness of man. It's that simple. Because of the sinfulness of man. Look at how he responds in verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, meaning when God first ordained marriage, it was not so. The permission for divorce God gave in Deuteronomy was not God's original design for marriage. But God gave permission for divorce out of mercy and grace because of the sinfulness of man. And don't miss the implications here. Don't miss it. Divorce is always a result of sin. Always. Whether from the husband or the wife or both. As one commentator notes, we must remember that marriage is the unification of two dreadful sinners. And as such, with any marital conflict or strife, sin is always involved. So whenever a divorce occurs, sinfulness on one or both sides is always the culprit. Whether it occurs due to pride, or to boredom, or, or infidelity, or, or anything else, sin lies at the bottom of every divorce. So therefore, other than for an extraordinarily few exceptions, two to be exact, which we'll see in a moment, Except for those, divorce always is sinful. Now again, I know these are piercing words. But these are words that we must hear. And so I, I pray that you, you, you stick with me. Now since divorce is always the result of sin in some fashion, and since almost all divorces happen in an unbiblical fashion and are therefore sinful, we, we must conclude that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. In fact, in, in Malachi 2.16, the Lord says that a man who does not love his wife and divorces her covers his garments with, with violence. God hates 
divorce. And he, and he hates it because it is completely at odds with his will and purpose for his creation of the marriage covenant. Now with that said, there are some churches, some churches that I know, who do not make any concession for divorce at all. Taking Jesus' words that God's original intent for marriage was to be permanent and the fact that he hates divorce, they believe that he was restoring the original intent of marriage, which he was, but then, therefore, he was, he was making it to where he gave no provision for divorce whatsoever. And they mostly do this citing Mark 10, verses 1 through 12, since Jesus, in that passage of, of this event, gives no allowance for divorce. But I believe that that view does not take into consideration this parallel passage in Mark, or sorry, in Matthew 19. Nor do I think it seriously considers 1 Corinthians 7, all which do give concessions for divorce. I believe those churches can have a, a clenched fist where the Lord has a mercifully open hand. But again, the circumstances under which the Lord allows for divorce are extremely strict. They are extremely strict. And we must remember again that it is not for us to add or to take away from them. Continuing Jesus' response in Matthew 19, verse 9, Jesus gives the correct interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and says, And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here Jesus gives the first of only two biblical grounds for divorce, sexual immorality. Now the word here for sexual immorality is actually the word, the Greek word, porneia, which is used in the Bible to, to refer to a, a broad swath of sexual sins in the Bible. So there is some debate as to what sexual immorality actually means here in this verse. But I think, given the context of the one flesh union that, uh, that Jesus just spoke of, it seems most likely that he is referring to a spouse who violates the marriage covenant through the breaking of the one flesh union by committing adultery. I believe, I believe that is what Jesus is speaking of here when he uses the word porneia. Now, why does Jesus forbid divorce in all other circumstances, save, save one in 1 Corinthians 7, but allow it in the case of sexual immorality? Why, why that one particular sin? Why that one? Well, again, remember what marriage is meant to signify. Remember what marriage does signify. Christ's own marriage to the church. So in the act of committing adultery, the offender is doing far more than betraying the vows he or she made with their spouse. They are marring the picture of the gospel. That's truly what's happening there. For the husband to commit adultery, it breaks the image of Christ's faithfulness to the church, for he represents Christ in the marriage. For the wife to commit adultery, she becomes a picture of God's people turning away from him to false gods. And this is why God, when in the Old Testament, Israel begins to worship foreign idols, false gods, he calls them harlots. He calls them an adulterous people. Adultery 
distorts and it throws mud on the picture of the gospel. It is a destructive force. And Proverbs 6.32 says that the one who commits adultery lacks sense and destroys himself. And to underscore this destructiveness of adultery, listen to the warning of Proverbs 7 about the seductive adulteress. You can, you can switch in adulterer there as well. Listen to what this says. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures with flattering talk. He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Now, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray into her paths, for she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is Sheol, hell, descending to the chambers of death. That is the destructive nature of adultery. It defiles, and it destroys Hebrews 13, 4 adds to the words of Proverbs saying, Marriage must be respected by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. God takes adultery extremely seriously. For it not only destroys the one flesh union between a husband and wife, but it also distorts a holy picture that that union is meant to display. And because of this, because, because of sinfulness, because of the hardness of heart of the one committing the adulterous offense, the Lord makes an allowance for the offended spouse to seek divorce without it being sinful. It's a mercy. So though the sin of the adulterer, or sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so though the sin of the adulterer, I got a little lost there for a second, but though the sin of the adulterer, the offending spouse caused the divorce. Oh, man, I am so sorry. So though the sin of the adulterer and the offending spouse caused the divorce, the offending spouse's sin caused the divorce for the offended spouse, for the one who was wronged, they can divorce without being guilty of sin. One Bible teacher pointed something important out, something I think is worth taking a quick look at. Notice that Jesus does not say that in the case of sexual immorality that divorce is required. He doesn't say that divorce is required. Rather, Jesus simply indicates that it is allowed. And this commentator says that when you take this fact with, with the theme of redemption, with the theme of the radical forgiveness of sin that is at the core of the gospel, it seems that Jesus desires us to approach the issue of divorce in a redemptive manner rather than the way in which the Pharisees approached it. Let me explain. See, the Pharisees and the rest of the Jewish culture were searching for ways in which they could escape the covenant of marriage. They wanted to escape it. And I believe this is obvious in the way the disciples responded to Jesus, saying that the only allowance for divorce is sexual immorality. Take a look at their response to that in verse 10 of Matthew 19. They say, if this is true, Jesus, if this is right, if you're going to be so strict, then man, 
We might as well not even get married in the first place. They wanted loopholes. They, they wanted a back door if things in their marriage got tough. But Jesus, especially in pointing back to God's original intent in Genesis 2, is saying the exact opposite. We are not to be looking for reasons to get divorced. In fact, we should long for reconciliation and restoration in our troubled marriages. We should want that. Our hearts should ache for that. And we, brothers and sisters, should work and pray to that end, not because it is easy, not because it is easy, but because Christ is in you and makes it possible. And so while in the case of adultery, divorce is permissible, it does not have to be inevitable. Now, while I believe that, while I believe the Holy Spirit does enable a believer to forgive their offending spouse if they seek forgiveness and bring about restoration in the marriage, we must also recognize that if that restoration, for whatever reason, is not possible, Jesus has given that spouse that has been wronged the right to seek divorce. Therefore, I believe it is wrong as brothers and sisters to pour out guilt and shame upon them if they choose divorce in that circumstance. We should not subtly or not so subtly guilt trip them where God does not. Let me say that again. We should not subtly or not so subtly guilt trip them where God does not. And so we especially myself and the, the, the other elders in this church. But all of you as well must pray and plead God for wisdom and discernment and compassion when we're speaking with someone whose spouse violated the heart of the marriage covenant and are considering divorce. We must pray that God gives us wisdom and discernment and compassion. Now, as I mentioned before, there's another passage in the New Testament that gives one more allowance for divorce, and it is found in 1 Corinthians 7. And again, this allowance is very specific, and it is very narrow, and it is abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 13. If any brother has a wife, who is an unbeliever, and she consents to stay with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so first, essentially, Paul is saying that a believing spouse should not seek out divorce with their unbelieving spouse, but should instead stay and do the work of evangelism, sharing the gospel with their spouse in various ways. But Paul continues in verse 15. He says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So in other words, if an unbelieving spouse seeks to leave the believing spouse, spouse through divorce, the believing spouse is under no obligation to stop it or to be bound to that spouse that, that no longer wants them. And so in this case, to go through a divorce for the believer is not sinful. But 
Believers are not to initiate or push this kind of divorce. But we do not have to fight someone who is an unbeliever who insists on leaving. Now that's it. That's it. Those are the only two allowances given by God for divorce. Adultery and abandonment. It is strict. And it is narrow. Now, I know right now in your minds, you might be thinking of a, of a million different reasons that, that seem legit on the outset as to why divorce would be the best thing in a particular situation. I'm sure there's, there's a million different scenarios that you can think of, of like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense for that person to divorce that person in that particular case. But listen to David Platt's words on this. He says, the fact that the Bible mentions adultery and abandonment as the only proper grounds for divorce has caused some people to conclude that the Bible's teaching is impractical or unrealistically narrow. But God is wise. He has not been caught unaware by the challenges of the 21st century. For even though there are all sorts of challenges and struggles marriages encounter, God doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He has given us the church, including its discipline and restoration, to be the means by which we walk through pain, hurt, and marital strife together. So brothers and sisters, there are a million reasons we as human beings can come up with as to why divorce should be permissible. And this includes abuse. It includes physical or sexual abuse to which physical separation for the safety of the spouse is absolutely permissible. But according to the wisdom of God, only these two circumstances, adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, are allowed. And we are to trust God and His wisdom in that. We are not more wise, brothers and sisters, and we are certainly not more merciful than God. And we must not forget church, as David Platt says, and as more importantly, Galatians 6 says, that we are charged as the church to bear the burdens of those who are suffering the heartache of each and every marital woe. And we as elders are mandated to hold accountable and exercise proper church discipline on spouses who are living in unrepentant sin with the hope of gospel restoration that will occur in their heart. Now, that is extremely difficult. This is an extremely difficult truth to bend the knee to. But as we said at the outset of this, this three-week mini-sermon, we must, if we are to be a Bible-believing people, submit ourselves to the authoritative Word of God and not place our own ideas of the ways things should be above the infinitely wise and good God. When it comes to the topic of divorce, we must, like everything else, be humble. We must be humble. Now, if what I have gone over so far, hasn't been difficult enough for you. Take another look at verse 9. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Jesus is saying here that remarriage after an unbiblical divorce 
one that did not take place because of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, we can assume from 1 Corinthians, leads to adultery. Therefore, I believe the correct inference to draw from that is that remarriage is permissible only for the offended party of a biblical divorce. Let me say it this way, just to be sure I'm, I'm, I'm making this as, as clear as I possibly can, because there's a lot of confusion about this issue. In the case of a biblical divorce due to adultery, the unadulterous person, the unadulterous spouse can without sin, remarry. In the case of a biblical divorce due to abandonment, the believing spouse who was abandoned can, without sin, remarry. However, outside these parameters, if a man or woman divorces their spouse and remarries, Jesus says that they are not free. They are not free to remarry because such a marriage would be adulterous. Now, without doubt, this subject may have brought up old or, or even new wounds. And as we have taken a look at the seriousness of the covenants, as we have looked at the sacredness of marriage and God's hatred for divorce and His, His strict regulation for divorce and remarriage, it may all sound like hopeless bad news for some of us. But brothers and sisters, that divorce that, that you may have been a part of, I pray you know, is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And if you are a believer here today, and you have experienced divorce, and you have uh, experienced through the, the heartache and the pain and the suffering of divorce, you must first know that you are still a part of the bride of Christ. And the reason why God is so serious about the covenant of marriage and so harsh on this subject of divorce is because He is serious about His marriage covenant with you. And my friends, remember that Jesus is always, He is always forgiving and He is always faithful. Even though your marriage covenant was broken with your spouse in the past, know and treasure that the ultimate marriage covenant, the one that, that binds you to Jesus Christ himself, is still and forever will be intact. One theologian says, unlike an earthly spouse, Jesus will never commit adultery against you, and he will never abandon you. No matter what happens in this life, even if you pursued and obtained an unbiblical divorce, Jesus never forsakes his bride. Never. Now, that does not give you license to pursue an unbiblical divorce, saying that, well, even if I do, Jesus will forgive me. That sort of thought process makes a mockery of God's grace. That sort of thought process completely misunderstands the gospel. Nevertheless, for those who have been divorced in the church and are looking for grace, know that it is there in Christ. It is there. Unbiblical divorce and even adultery are not unforgivable sins. They're not. But they are among the countless other sins that sent Jesus to the cross so that all who repent and put their faith in Him will be forgiven. They will be. That is the promise of the gospel and the goodness of our Savior. 
Now after the outburst from the disciples who, who thought these words from Jesus were, were too harsh and thought that it's better not to marry at all if it, was, if it was to be this way, Jesus says these interesting words in verse 11. He says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. This means that the words Jesus is speaking about divorce won't be accepted by everyone. Because why? The hardness of hearts. But only those to whom God softens the hearts of will receive it. He then continues with even more interesting words in verse 12. For there are eunuchs. Where did that come from? For there are eunuchs who have been so at birth meaning those who are sexually impotent. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. For instance, some high courts in various cultures back then would have their male servants made sexually impotent in order to ensure that abuse would not happen while they were serving the high-status women. And then Jesus says there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now, this last category of eunuchs is not like the first category, or the first two categories, rather. These are individuals who, for the sake of the expansion of the gospel, remain single and sexually pure. Now, I believe that these words of Jesus, that seem, that seem kind of odd and, and maybe, maybe a little out of place, I believe can be applied in, in three different ways. The first is a simple response to the disciples' proclamation that it might be better to not marry. And Jesus may be saying that for some individuals who God has gifted with singleness, the disciples may be right. There are those, Jesus says, who maximize their singleness for the advancement of the gospel. They don't view it as, as a curse, though at times it may be burdensome and difficult. Jesus here in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 actually commends singleness. While marriage is a wonderful thing that in its own way promotes the spreading of the gospel, friends, the intense focus of a single person to the spreading of the gospel is, is a hard thing to match. Therefore, marriage is not best for all people. Paul makes this, if you want to dig into this a little bit more, Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35. And many people think that you must be married in order to live a complete life. And I want you to know, that is, that is utterly untrue. It's, it's utterly false. That's not true. And if you challenge me on that, I would invite you to, to, to meet my friend Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was and is the most complete man. He is the most complete man, and not only that, but he is the most fulfilled man to ever have lived. And guess what? He wasn't married. He wasn't married. And neither was Paul. And neither were many other heroes throughout church history. God has ordained some for his own purposes to be single. Now, the second reason Jesus may have brought up the topic of the eunuch is to address those who had a biblical divorce, who had a biblical divorce, and are single. Now, the words I'm about to say can also be applied to, to widows and widowers as well. 
If you obtain a divorce on biblical grounds, then there is rest to be had in singleness that God has given you for this time. And if he sees fit to continue your singleness, as hard as it can seem, pray for the Holy Spirit to help you rejoice in it. And pray for him to reveal to you how he desires for you to maximize your singleness for his glory. And if he leads you to remarry, rejoice in that as well. And seek in this new marriage to be the picture of Christ and his church. Third, I believe these words of Jesus can apply to those who got a divorce for unbiblical reasons and are now called by God to remain single. First, you must repent of the unbiblical divorce to God and to your previous spouse. And if you have, rejoice. Rejoice in the forgiveness that is lavishly poured out on you by God. Let the gospel just, just wash over you. And pray for the Spirit to, to encourage you in your life as a single who is focused on the advancement of the kingdom. And as I said before, pray for the Lord to help you maximize your singleness for the glory of Christ Jesus. And pray for the Lord to help you eagerly look forward to your next and better wedding. Where you will join with the rest of Jesus' bride at the great wedding feast, which will just be, well, it'll be just the beginning of your eternity with Christ. When you find it difficult, lean on the church. Lean on the church. Lean on your brothers and sisters to help you through the life of a single. It also goes for anyone who is single for any reason, by the way. Now, I want to mention those who are divorced for an unbiblical reason and have gotten remarried. I believe from Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 19, again, the proper course of action is first repentance. Repent before God and your former spouse. And just like any sinner who genuinely repents, bask in the warmth of the mercy and grace of God. The adultery that Jesus says that was committed upon your remarriage has been forgiven. It's been, it's been washed away. And so delight in that. Truly delight in it. Dance and sing for joy. God never desires for us, once we have repented of our sin, to stay in shame and guilt. Rather, He wants us to experience the, the fullness of joy in Him as we delight in the peace that He brings to our weary souls. Secondly, magnify and reflect the gospel in your current marriage. Scripture nowhere indicates that you should break another marriage covenant by divorcing again. So focus on the true purpose of marriage with your spouse that you have now. Focus on working together for the glory and the proclamation of Christ. We made it. Now, that was probably one of the longer sermons I've preached. I think the proper thing to do at this time is to go to our loving and merciful Father. Father, this was difficult. This was a humbling message. But Father, I pray that your spirit grants us 
the humility to take all of this in. Lord, I pray that your spirit puts a desire in us to live in accordance to your image, to follow in your footsteps, to follow after your word, not what we think should be in your word. Father, help us be obedient. Help us be obedient in our marriages, in our remarriages, in our singleness. And Father God, we just thank you for your mercy. Lord, because even though we have the hardness of heart, or even though we sinned against you and we, we, we rebelled against you, and that is so evident in our, in our troubled marriages, God, we can rest in your faithfulness. We can rest in the fact that you will never abandon nor forsake us. So, Father, we thank you. I pray this in your son's name.